All right, kids ages three to pre-K can head down Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, if you have a Bible with you, can open it to the book of Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. The text should be in your, in your order of worship in your bulletin. If it's not there um, and you still need something, we have a bunch of Bibles in the back. If you don't own a Bible, that's for you. So grab one. I mentioned this already. We're in chapter 2 of uh, Luke's Gospel. Um, I mentioned this already, but we are, we are spending the Advent season working through four songs. Four songs that are recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. And some of you are thinking, how do we know those are songs, right? Because they're, they're written on a page. How would you know? Well, uh, you know, scholars can tell lyrically that, that, that there's meter, there's rhyme. We've got poetry that would have made sense within, uh, within first century singing. And so these, are, these have been traditionally understood as songs. They're given as responses to the coming of Jesus. And so two weeks ago, you'll remember, some of you, we looked at uh, Mary's song, the song that she sung as she was told in, in response to hearing that she would be the one to give birth to God in the flesh. And last week, we looked at the song of the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, who was singing of God coming to heal the world through forgiving sin and putting things to rights. And this week, we hear a heavenly army singing because God is finally and fully bringing peace to the world. So if you have your place in Luke chapter 2, if you'd stand, that's our habit here in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. As we do so, let me just remind us, one of the things that our uh, confession so wisely tells us is that as we, the, the reading of the word of God, hearing of the word of God both read and preached is a powerful thing. And, and we are not passive in it. We are active participants, those who are to add uh, faith and love to what we hear so that it might become effectual for our salvation. This is God's word to us. And try and not imagine Linus. That's all I'm going to say. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, over this time, we ask your blessing. Many of, we've come into this room, all of us, with different stories. Some of us are here, and we are full of joy and faith and expectancy because we expect to hear from you and are, are longing to do so. Others of us are, um, are hesitant, maybe fearful of what you might ask of us or, uh, or of, of just the way that our week has gone, and others of us are just skeptical. Uh, we're not really sure what this is about, and, and we're not even sure if you exist better yet if you will speak to us. But you are a God who gives good news to all the people. And so as we're gathered here in this place, we pray that you would meet us in the place that we are at, whether that is full of faith or full of doubts, more likely something mixed in the middle. And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see you and our ears to hear you in our hearts to receive you. Let Christ in all that he has done come to the fore and let 
the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord, for you, whole, you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. I don't know if uh, you knew this, but um, Tuesday commemorated the 35th um, anniversary of the death of John Lennon. 35 years. Some of you remember what, what that was like. Um, I was two. I don't remember. Uh, but some of you will remember that. Maybe some of you were watching Monday Night Football when Howard Cosell uh, announced it. He kind of famously announced it. Um, it's probably the only real news that's ever broken on Monday Night Football. But um, Lennon is, of course, known for many things, right? The British invasion, the mop top haircut, uh, in my humble opinion, the worst Christmas song ever. Despise that song. Uh, but it plays starting on the day after Halloween now on the 24-hour Christmas station. Anyway, I digress. What, what I would argue is probably his most famous song is built around one word and one concept. Imagine. Right? Remember that song? Imagine. I'm sure you've heard it. Imagine no heaven, no religion, nothing to kill or die for. You know that? This song, for all its simplicity and for all its iconic status, is really the musings of someone who is trying to imagine a world that's different. He's looking around at a world that seems utterly broken, and he understands it that way, just as many of us do. And then he begins imagining what the perfect world might be like. You hear that, right? He's imagining an ideal world. In other words, this song is one man's vision, his version of something that the Bible talks about as well. In fact, it's what the song of the angels are singing is about. A lot shorter. The angels singing a lot shorter than what John Lennon sang, but that was before the rule that you had to write a three and a half to four minute song for it to be catchy. So, uh, our text this morning uh, comes, gives us more than the idyllic picture that belongs in a children's book. It gives us something that is, that is real, real life. Because you see, the difference between the song that the angels are singing and the song that Lennon sang is a difference not of, not of some vision of, of peace, but of what the problem was in the first place. How to actually get there. And so this song does more than simply paint a picture for us. It declares something. Something that has actually come to be. The song of the angels announces for us the coming of peace coming of glory, the coming of Christ. And so we're going to look at this text this morning in three ways. We're going to look at this song in three ways. And that, there's an outline in your bulletin that's, if that's uh, something you would use. If not, just leave it. We're going to look at this as a universal song. We're going to look at this as a holistic song. And then finally, we're going to look at this as a gracious song. Okay? A universal song, a holistic song, and a gracious song. Okay? Let's begin by seeing this as a universal song, by looking at the audience. Okay? Look down at verse 8. The scene's painted for us like this. There were in that region shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. Right? Sounds pretty, doesn't it? It sounds just awesome. Like, how many of our children's books and children's Bibles kind of give us an image in our head that's influenced by manger scenes? And, and, and frankly, even Linus with his little blue blanket wrapped around his head or, or hanging on to him. Uh, the problem with that, however, is that this image has, is nothing Nothing <laughs> like the image that saying this to, to, to uh, those in the first century would have had in their heads when this was said. Okay? Uh, we, we tend to uh, think in our culture that shepherds are kind of pretty cool, right? Especially nowadays, because they're like free-range, like no steroid, uh, no antibiotic dudes. It's like first century polyface, you know? Uh, but here's the problem. It's not exactly the case. In, 
In first century Judea, shepherds were the lowest of the low. Right? So they are, they are uh, hired workers, first and foremost, which means that many of them wouldn't have been landowners, which means that they're poor, first and foremost. Some of them would have been, would have been landowners, but they wouldn't have had enough money to, to just kind of maintain, wouldn't have had enough income to maintain. So, so they are, they are uh, they're peasants, they're poor, they're, they're working a, kind of a second job, many of them. Um, a lot of times in the first century, they were considered criminals because, well, they were. Uh, you know, being a shepherd doesn't pay the old bills, so you got to make your money some way. So shepherds were often understood as not just poor folks, but criminals. Like, these are the, these are the kind of people. They're not the, like, you know, nice, bearded, like, soft-looking dudes that you get in your advent calendar, right? These are hard men. Dare I say swarthy. I don't even know exactly what that word means, but it sounds like a pirate word to me. So I think that's probably... They were, they were that kind of guy out in the fields. These are not your religious dudes waiting for news about God's rescue plan. Right away, we see that this song is being sung to those who were culturally marginal. These are most likely petty thieves working the night shift. From the start, we see that this news, this news, this song that the angels are going to sing is first and foremost, it's for the unlikely. Okay? Not just that, though. Look at verse 10. Because the angel shows up, he lights up the sky, tells them not to be afraid, and then he tells them that this good news is for all the people. You see that? It's not for most people. It's not for a select group of people. Uh, It's for all, which is good news to, my guess would be, everyone in this room. Right? I'm looking around, I'm not seeing a whole lot that look like they've got a whole lot of Jewish blood, like a whole lot of Jewish heritage to them, right? So this is good news for us. This is not even news for one group of people, it is news, good news for all peoples. All the peoples of the world are to hear this message and the song with it as for them. And then lastly, in terms of audience, look down at verse 11 and stay with me, because this one's a little, it's a little more to grasp here. Look down at verse 11, the angel says, because to, to you this day... In the city of David is born a Savior. If you have your Bible, underline that word Savior, okay? Who is Christ the Lord, and underline that too. And here's why. We say Savior and Lord, and that all, all of that for us is associated with Jesus, right? I don't care if you're a Christian in this room or not. Savior and Lord, you've heard enough uh, music stars give thanks to their Savior and Lord before they, before they accept their award about singing about something that generally he would want nothing to do with. But anyway, the point is, you've heard that enough that you would associate that with Jesus. Well, in the first century, you wouldn't. These angels show up talking about good news, the birth of a Savior, who is the Lord. That would have had a whole other connotation to those that heard it. See, the, the Gospel of Luke was written by this guy. You can guess his name, right? This guy named Luke. And he, he was a highly educated Roman Okay, he's a highly educated uh, person in the Greco-Roman world, writing to a, a, probably someone who was likewise, some guy named Theophilus, right? And so he's writing this in, in a Roman world. And these, these words would have been particularly meaningful, if not shocking, to people living under Caesar. Gospel, good news, Savior, Lord. And that's because of this. After Augustus Caesar, okay? Now, I know you're like, history... Really? 
I know, just stay with me though, right? You had Julius Caesar, then you had his son Octavian, who later became Augustus Caesar, okay? When Augustus Caesar had brought the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome to all of the world, the Roman Senate put out a decree that his birthday was to be celebrated as the beginning of time because with his birth came the good news that a savior had come for all the world. And he was Lord. That was about Caesar. With his birthday, they said, came not just the coming of good news, but the coming of peace. Peace. Peace to the world. Peace in our time. And so what these angels, what these messengers are bringing is something that is completely against the world they are living in. These messengers are bringing a gospel of the real Lord of all, the real Savior of the world, and that he has, in fact, finally come. Here's why this matters. It matters because of a singular hope. Jesus is not a provincial deity. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Uh, in, in, in the pagan world... Um, in the, in the ancient world that was, that was full of pagans, the one that Jesus was born into, um, everyone had their own little god, right? I mean, each city had their own little patron deity. Athens was named after Athena, right? They, all of these cities had their own little gods that they would worship, and you could have your temples of other things in them. It, you, could, you could always add gods or goddesses to, to the, the group as long as they could all line up under one pagan worldview. Some of us thought that postmodernism created pluralism, right? Not, not really. Uh, not at all. Why do you think it is the Romans killed Christians? Romans didn't kill Christians because the Christians came out and said, y'all are sinners. They could have cared less. The Romans killed Christians because this little ragtag group proclaimed, uh, or rather held the dangerous belief that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord of everything. They were seen as disruptive of civil life, unpatriotic, intolerant, right? You see, here's, this matters because in our current context, relativism is just another form of paganism or tribal religion. You've got your God. I've got my God. Ultimately, as long as we, alter at the, the altar, we worship the altar of pluralism, we're all going to get along, right? It does this under, under this kind of umbrella belief, an absolute one, that the only truth that everyone must adhere to is that the individual is the source and goal of all truth. See, that's the dirty little secret of pluralism. This kind of idea that there's no such thing as absolute truth. The only one everyone is cool with being intolerant towards are those who disagree with the idea that there is something higher than me that says what is true. See, friends, the Bible doesn't declare that this baby that's lying in the manger that they're singing about is a hope, even a better hope, even the best hope. If that were the case, the angels would have said, to you this day is born a Savior, who is Christ, one of the Lords. You cannot line Jesus up with all the other gurus. He doesn't give you that option, and neither does the rest of the Bible. He is the good news. For all people, not just middle class white folks, 
Not just folks in one church or another. Not just people in this part of the world, in the Western world. He is the good news for all people. Now, some of you are thinking, like, that is so close-minded, right? I would argue not at all. Because, look, everyone makes absolute statements like this. Follow me for a second. The statement that, that, um, that no religion has all the truth is based on an unexamined absolute truth, right? It's based on an unexamined absolute truth claim that you, in fact, know what all the truth is so that you can evaluate, well, Islam has this much, Christianity has this much, Buddhism has this much, and I can tell because I can see. And all you poor little fools over here, not so much, right? That famous example, I've said this before, but that famous example of like religion being like a bunch of blind guys who are feeling their way on the elephant and trying to describe the elephant is given to you from the perspective of someone who can see who's looking at these fools groping an elephant. Like, what are they doing? Idiots? If they could see like me, they'd understand it's an elephant. Quit calling it Jesus. Right? See, the unexamined belief that all truth claims are culturally determined... Maybe you've heard of that one. Or that they seek to control others. Never seems to grasp the fact that such an idea could only be born in the context of Western Europe and Western European culture. And doesn't ever seem to grasp that their insistence on it is imposing it and seeking to control all other cultures around the world. Sorry, you Middle Eastern people. You don't understand. You can't have absolute truth claims. We're, we're all... You see that? Every truth claim is by its very nature closed-minded. Two plus two is not open to being five. Right? Closed-minded. For whatever reason it is that these angels believe all people need good news, need a Savior, need a Lord, they are very clear that if you are going to find one, it is going to be Jesus or it will be no other. So it's a universal song, but it's also a holistic one, okay? Let's look at singing peace. So the the one angel finishes saying this, and suddenly an entire host of angels shows up. Now, before I move on to what they're singing, let me just say this. Um, When the text says host, right, a heavenly host is arriving, what we need to understand is that this does not mean a bunch of glowing dudes in wings with choir ropes, okay? A host is a military term. It's a military term. When God is called the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament, it literally means, if you were to translate it, it would be the commander of the heavenly armies. He's the commander of the heavenly armies. These are not dudes in choir robes. These are dudes in armor. This isn't the song of a choir. It is the song of a victorious army. I know this is a very far cry from your willow tree figurines in your house, but it's true. So, you know, sorry. Now, here's what they, they sing this in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and upon the earth, peace. Stop there. I'm not certain if there is any more loaded term in the Bible than this one. Peace. Um, you and I tend to hear peace, and we think a cessation of hostilities. The, the, the word that's spoken here, okay, and, and we're a little bit removed, right, because we're, we're reading this word in English, 
It was originally written, the Gospel of Luke was originally written in Greek, but more than likely the word that was said to the shepherds so that they could have understood it was probably either Aramaic or Hebrew. And and that word would have been shalom. Shalom. Throughout the Bible, that word is used to describe the way God meant for everything to be. And here's here's what we really need to get when we understand shalom. We understand this idea of fullness, wholeness, uh, peace. Shalom is about relationships. Shalom is about relationships. Because God is relational, and so is shalom. Here's what I mean. God created the world. He called it good, right? You remember, many of you remember this at the beginning of the story, right? Beginning of the Bible. He, he created the world. He called it good. And humanity is created last, not just as a crowning achievement, of which we are called that in the scriptures, but in a position of authority. And so there, in the beginning, all of our relationships lined up perfectly, exactly as they were supposed to be. Relationship with God, relationship with ourselves, relationship with others, and our relationship with creation. All of it lined up perfectly. Now here's the really important part. The Bible tells us that our relationship with God, a dependent relationship with him, is the primary one through which all the rest hold together. And then if that one is skewed, if that one is disrupted, then all of them become disrupted. And so shalom, that word shalom, describes the state in which all of our relationships line up without any fracture in them. So does it mean no hostilities? Yes, of course it does. Because everything is lining up exactly as God intended when he created everything. Imagine that. Imagine what that might be like. A world in which we are not divided amongst ourselves. Where we never sin against each other. Where we never hurt one another with our words or our actions. Where, where uh, we don't abuse ourselves with our words. Where we, don't, um, where, where we aren't turning from God or, or abusing the creation we've been placed over. It's hard, isn't it? See, Lenin tried, but his was the imagination of pluralism, and so it failed. It's hard to imagine because that isn't our experience. We live in a world where all those relationships are so jacked up, we wouldn't even know where to start. How do we even begin to see those things line back up again? We know we were made for shalom, but we don't have it. And that's why we need to be singing this story. Because the Bible tells us that all the problems we see in the world are rooted in one event. We were created for shalom. But, but that fundamental relationship I talked about, the fundamental relationship, was, was broken. Because we were created to love God. And, and the, the Bible tells us we were created to love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. But something happened. In time, we, we began to doubt the good heart of God. That he's not actually for us. He doesn't love us. He's not pursuing us. He, he has no, he, all he wants to do is use us. And so we turn from him. We betrayed him. We doubted his heart and we betrayed him. And that is what the Bible calls sin. And because we broke the fundamental relationship, all of those others came out of joint as well. Nothing holds together the way it was supposed to. Sin, betraying God, has infected everything. 
The Bible's claim, friends, is that, is, is that the, the brokenness that we see in our world, the brokenness we see in our homes, in our neighborhoods, on the news, that all of it stems from exactly the same thing. There's no difference. Now, some of you are thinking, wait, 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 no difference? Come on, Rick. I know I'm not perfect. But I ain't shooting up any holiday parties. Right? I mean, I know my life's a little messed up. You know, some of you are like, I, I know I'm a little messed up. I, I'm, I'm willing to say that. But at least I'm not a racist or a hypocrite like all those other people. Most of y'all, right? Maybe, maybe. But listen, I'm telling you the Bible says that all of it comes from the same place. Jesus would say it this way, that your behavior comes from your heart. That it comes from within. That who you are determines what you do, not the other way around. Right? Most of our culture, we have been taught that what we do somehow defines us. And the Bible says, no, no, no. How you are defined will then create what you do. That it is the fact that you are messed up that drives your behavior. Our relationships with God, self, others, and creation are messed up. And here's what I mean. We were made, like I said, for a dependent relationship with God. But now that's broken. That's broken. For some of us, we show that by wandering far from Him. Right? We run off and we are, we are in a ditch most nights. Like, we are, we are gone. We're like, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't need you. I'm going to go find my own way. And we betray Him and we turn away from Him that way. That's what most of us probably think about when we think about betraying God, right? The Bible also says that others of us betray Him by slaving for His approval. By being the good kid. On our own, by, by meeting the expectations and then demanding we get back from him. And the Bible says that that person who looks really clean is just as broken as the person waking up in the ditch. We were made for all of our being to love God and others. But now our relationship with ourselves is broken. Here's what I mean by that. For some of us, that means being fractured internally, right? Where, where internally we, we end up either, either uh, despising ourselves or, or for some of us, for some of us, it means having a God complex, right? Thinking that if someone's going to be rescued, it's going to be because I do it. We were made for a relationship of mutual self-giving towards others, but now those relationships are broken. And so what we will tend to do is either, either seek to use other people or seek to offer ourselves to be used by them. Finally, you know, we're, we're made to steward all of creation, to labor for the glory of God and the good of others. But now, because of sin, that relationship is broken. So that some of us will end up seeing ourselves carried along by the forces of the world without any control of our lives just trying to get ours. While others of us are workaholics, believing that, that, that all that we labor for will make us somebody. Any of that sound familiar? Now let me make something clear. I need you to hear me on this. The Bible declares that all of that is equally sin. There's no gradation, friends. 
It is all equally sin, all deserving of God's judgment and a sign that we are alienated from him. And this is the problem that the Bible declares, which is what makes the declaration of the angels so audacious. They aren't just declaring that the Savior is bringing warm feelings or spiritual knowledge. He has come to bring shalom. He has come to take those relationships and line them back up to what they were meant to be, to make the world in all of its glorious ruin right again. Now, if you're still with me, and any of this is strange to you, what you're probably thinking right now is how. How? Because you watch the news. Heck, you live in your house. You know how this works. And that is where we come to the gracious song. It isn't like Christianity is the first first, uh, thought system, religion, uh, whatever you want to call it, to to declare both a problem and a solution, right? I mean, every worldview does that. Every worldview declares there's a problem, and here's what our solution is. It's part of what makes a way of looking at the world. Uh, it's, It's not that Christianity does that. It's how it does that that makes it so unique. And it's what makes what these angels are proclaiming good news instead of good advice. It begins with singing glory. Look again at verse 14. They say, glory to God in the highest. Now, that's a declaration of praise, right? I think most of us probably get that, even if you're not, you haven't grown up in church or have any knowledge of Christianity. The idea of glory being to God is something that sounds like you're, you're praising, you're celebrating. We get that, okay? Now, to give glory is to make much of someone. And if you spend any time reading the Bible, especially the Psalms, and some of you have, uh, you probably won't be surprised by this because God is always getting glory. But but it does sound weird to most of us, I think. That's because it raises the question of why God should be made much of. And we wonder that because in every other worldview, every other religion, every other way of looking at the world, besides Christianity, the whole point to it is here's your plan of action Now go do it. Here's what you need to do to make your life right. Do you know how big the sections of self-help are in our bookstores for this? Here's what you need to do to get your life in order. Here are the pillars you have to follow. Uh, Here's the the path that you need to go down. Uh, You know, it doesn't doesn't matter if you're talking about um, Islam with its pillars or or Buddhism with its path or, or, or New Age with its seeking some kind of personal enlightenment or or Hinduism with its karmic cycles, or Nietzsche and his will to power. All of them give us something to do to make the world right. Do you see that? It's the way they all work. And that's how we understand religion. And so if that's the way it is, shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't we be the ones getting the glory? So at the end of the day, we get, we get, the, we get the, the, the rules, we get the path, and we do it, and, and God, when we get there, says, boy, Good job, you made it. Unlike those losers, well done. Right? But Christianity is different. Like I said, it is good news, not good advice. And it is the news that God has come to rescue us. It isn't that a teacher came to give us some new ideas, a lawgiver has come to give us new rules, or a guru has come to give us a new self-image. God has come to rescue us. That is why much is to be made of him. Christianity isn't about what we do. It's about what God has done. And these angels are giving glory because in that manger, God has finally come to heal the world. And finally, let's talk about singing grace. Look at that last phrase. P. 
peace, shalom among the, on earth, among those with whom he is pleased. Now, most of us remember Linus saying this, or, or maybe the King James Version, which says, um, what we remember is, peace on earth, goodwill to men, right? That, that's um, a literal translation of this would probably be uh, peace among those in whom he delights. Okay? Now, there are two ways to take this. The first is that it means that this shalom is towards humanity, whom God delights in, which uh, is true. I mean, the statement is true. God does delight in humanity, but shalom extends beyond just humanity. It's for the world. Another way to take this, I think, is probably adds to that and helps to flesh it out, is that, is that God will undoubtedly bring about shalom for those he, de- he takes delight in. But who are they? I mean, that's the question, right? Who are they? What is it that gets us God's delight? Because you see, again, the presupposition of religion is that what gets us God's delight is doing something for him. We do this and we get delighted in. I do this and I get God to like me. Christianity says something completely different. God does what he does without regard to what we do. He does it by grace. That, that word is, that's not just the, that's not the prayer you say before your meal. Grace is, grace is an undeserved favor. This is a declaration, okay? This is a declaration, not an invitation. It is a declaration of shalom, not an invitation to it. It is the declaration of news, not a call to work. Christianity from first to last is about God's work on our behalf. It is about God loving the unlovely. Finding the lost, healing the broken, giving life to the dead. This is a declaration that we are to receive and then live in light of. See, the angels are singing this statement at this time, right after Jesus was born, because that is why he came in the first place. You and I were made for a dependent relationship with him, but couldn't ever do it. And so, if our relationship is to be restored... We have got to depend on Him. In Jesus, God came and lived perfectly for us. Died sacrificially to bear the judgment due for our betrayal of God and then rose again to give life to the world. The certainty that shalom, the certainty that peace, the the certainty that these things would be to anyone is because of Jesus. We place our faith in Him, depend on Him, repent of the ways we have been placing our hopes in ourselves And we return to him. Friends, this song is universal. Because Jesus is the only possible way to return to dependence on God. It is holistic because our restoration to God will allow all the other relationships to to return to where they were meant to. And it is gracious because he did not, he, he did this not because we had done something to make him do it. He did this because he delights in those he rescues. What a better Savior could you imagine? Would you pray with me? Lord, we, as we have come into this place carrying different stories, uh, many of us are asking different questions right now. Some of us are asking the question of when is lunch? Others of us are asking the question of how could such a thing be true? Lord, we, we need you to act. 
and to work by your spirit to convince us of these things. Lord, we pray and we ask for you to be moving. That not only as we come to faith in Christ and are restored to relationship with you, that, that you would just bless us, but that you would also be working in us to line up the rest of those relationships. Would you bring wholeness, shalom to us? And Lord, would you let this church be a church that lives as a, as a foretaste in this community, a foretaste of what those kind of relationships might be like. Not because we won't sin against each other, we will, but because we are quick to, to repent, quick to confess and repent what we have done to each other and to you, quick to offer forgiveness to others, quick to love. And Lord, as you have declared peace, we pray that you would let that go forth in the world even now, a world that seems to be tearing itself apart. Would you let your peace reign, not just a day, not just a season, but ultimately, Lord, we ask that you would come and bring your peace to bear to heal the world that we have broken, but that you have rescued. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.